In this meadow then they lay down and slept, for here they might lie down and sleep safely. When they awoke, they gathered again of the fruits of the trees, and drank again of the water of the river, and then lay down again to sleep. Thus they did several days and nights. Now could you have believed it, that two such men as our pilgrims were, could be in the enjoyment of all that the first half of the week, and then by their own doing should be in giant despair's deepest dungeon before the end of the same week? And yet so it was, and all that is written for the solemn warning of those who are at any time in great enlargement and refreshment and joy in their spiritual life. It is intended for all those who are at any time reveling in a season of revival. Those, for example, who are just come home from Keswick and from Dunblane, as well as for all those who at home have just made the discovery of some great master of the spiritual life, and who are almost beside themselves with their delight in their divine author. If they are new beginners, they will not take this warning well, nor will even all old pilgrims lay it aright to heart. But there it is, as plain as the plainest, simplest, and most practical writer in our language could put it. Behold ye how these crystal streams do glide to comfort pilgrims by the highway side. The meadows green, besides their fragrant smell, yield dainties for them. And he that can tell what pleasant fruits, yea, leaves these trees do yield, will soon sell all that he may buy this field. Thus the two pilgrims sang, only adds our author in the parenthesis, they were not as yet at their journey's end. Number two. Now I beheld in my dream that they had not journeyed far when the river and the way for a time parted, at which the two pilgrims were not a little sorry. The two pilgrims could not perhaps be expected to break forth into dancing and singing at the parting of the river and the way, even though they had recollected at that moment what the brother of the Lord says about our counting it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. But it would not have been too much to expect from such experienced pilgrims as they by this time were that they should have suspected and checked and commanded their sorrow. They should have said something like this to one another. Well, it would have been very pleasant had it been our king's will and way with us that we should have finished the rest of our pilgrimage among the apples and the lilies and on the soft and fragrant bank of the river. But we believe that it must in some as yet hidden way be better for us that the river and our road should part from one another, at least for a season. Come, brother, and let us go on till we find out our master's deep and loving mind. But instead of saying that, Christian and Hopeful soon became like the children of Israel as they journeyed from Mount Hor. Their soul was much discouraged because of the way. And always, as they went on, they wished for a softer and a better way. And it was so that they very soon came to the very thing they so much wished for. For what is that on the left hand of the hard road but a stile, and over the stile a meadow, as soft to the feet as the meadow of lilies itself? "'Tis just according to my wish,' said Christian. "'Here is the easiest going. "'Come, good hopeful, let us go over.' And hopeful said, but how if the path should lead us out of the way? That's not like, said the other. Look, doth it not go along by the wayside? So Hopeful, being persuaded by his fellow, went after him over the stile. Call to mind, all you who are delivered and restored pilgrims, that same stile that once seduced you. 
To keep that style ever before you is at once a safe and a seemly occupation of mind for anyone who has made your mistakes and come through your chastisements. Christian's eyes, all his after days, filled with tears, and he turned away his face and blushed scarlet, as often as he suddenly came upon any opening in a wall at all like that opening he here persuaded hopeful to climb through. It is too much to expect that those who are just mounting the stile and have just caught sight of the smooth path beyond it will let themselves be pulled back into the hard and narrow way by any persuasion of ours. Christian put down Hopeful's objection till Hopeful broke out bitterly when the thunder was roaring over his head and he was wading about among the dark waters. Oh, that I had kept myself in my way. Are you a little sorry tonight that the river and the way are parting in your life? Is your soul discouraged in you because of the soreness of the way? And as you go, do you still wish for some better way than the straight way? And have you just espied a stile on the left hand of your narrow and flinty path? And on looking over it, is there a pleasant meadow? And does your companion point out to your satisfaction and almost to your good conscience that the soft road runs right along the hard road, only over the stile and outside the fence? Then goodbye, for it is all over with you. We shall meet you again, please God, but when we meet you again, your mind and memory will be full of shame and remorse and suffering enough to keep you in songs of repentance for all the rest of your life on earth. Farewell. The pilgrims now, to gratify the flesh, will seek its ease, but oh how they afresh do thereby plunge themselves new griefs into, who seek to please the flesh themselves undo. Number 3. The two transgressors had not gone far on their own way when night came on, and with the night a very great darkness. But what soon added to the horror of their condition was that they heard a man fall into a deep pit right before them, and it sounded to them as if he were dashed to pieces by his fall. So they called to know the matter, but there was none to answer, only they heard a groaning. Then said Hopeful, Where are we now? Then was his fellow silent, as mistrusting that he had led Hopeful out of the way. Now all that also is true to the very life, and has been taken down by Bunyan from the very life. We have all heard men falling, and heard them groaning just a little before us, after we had left the straight gate. They had just gone a little further wrong than we had as yet gone, just a little further. In some cases, indeed, not so far, when they fell and were dashed to pieces with their fall. It was well for us at that dreadful moment that we heard the same voice saying to us for our encouragement, as said to the two trembling transgressors, Let thine heart be toward the highway, even the way that thou wentest. Turn again. Now what is it in which you are at this moment going off the right road? What is that life of disobedience or self-indulgence that you are just entering on? Keep your ears open and you will hear hundreds of men and women falling and being dashed to pieces before you and all around you. Are you falling of late too much under the power of your bodily appetite? It is not one man, nor two, well known to you, who have fallen never to rise again out of that horrible pit. Are you well enough aware that you are being led into bad company? Or is your companion, who is not a bad man in anything else, leading you in this and in that into what at any rate is bad for you. You will soon, unless you cut off your companion like a right hand, be found saying with misguided and overruled hopeful, 
Oh, that I had kept me to my right ways. And so on in all manner of sin and trespass. Those who have ears to hear such things hear every day one man after another falling through lust or pride or malice or idleness or infidelity till there is none to answer. Number four. All hope abandoned was the writing that Dante read over the door of hell. And the two prisoners all but abandoned all hope when they found themselves in Giant Despair's dungeon. Only Christian, the elder man, had the most distress because their being where they now were lay mostly at his door. All this part of the history also is written in Bunyan's very heart's blood. I found it hard work, he tells us of himself, to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. I thought I was as with a tempest driven away from God. About this time I did light on that dreadful story of that miserable mortal, Francis Spira, a book that was to my troubled spirit as salt when rubbed into a fresh wound. Every groan of that man with all the rest of his actions in his dolors, as his tears, his prayers, his gnashing of teeth, his wringing of hands, were as knives and daggers in my soul. Especially that sentence of his was frightful to me. Man knows the beginning of sin, but who bounds the issues thereof? We never read anything like Spira's experience and grace abounding and giant despair's dungeon in the books of our day. And why not, do you think? Is there less sin among us modern men? Or did such writers as John Bunyan overdraw and exaggerate the sinfulness of sin? Were they wrong in holding so fast as they did hold that death and hell are the sure wages of sin? Has divine justice become less fearful than it used to be to those who rush against it, or is it that we are so much the better men? Is our faith stronger and more victorious over doubt and fear? Is it that our hope is better anchored? Whatever the reason is, there can be no question but that we walk in a liberty that our fathers did not always walk in. Whether or no our liberty is not recklessness or licentiousness is another matter. Whether or no it would be a better sign of us if we were better acquainted with doubt and dejection and diffidence and even despair is a question it would only do us good to put to ourselves. When we properly attend to these matters we shall find out that the holier a man is, the more liable he is to the assaults of doubt and fear and even despair. We have whole psalms of despair, so deep was David's sense of sin, so high were his views of God's holiness and justice, and so full of diffidence was his wounded heart. And David's son, when our sin was laid upon him, felt the curse and the horror of his state so much that his sweat was in drops of blood, and his cry in the darkness was that his God had forsaken him. And when our spirits are wounded with our sins, as the spirits of all God's greatest saints have always been wounded, we too shall feel ourselves more at home with David and with Asaph and with Spira, even and with John Bunyan. Despair is not good, but it is infinitely better than indifference. It is a common saying, says South, and an observation in divinity, that where despair has slain its thousands, presumption has slain its ten thousands. The agonies of the former are indeed more terrible, but the securities of the latter are far more fatal. Number five. I will, says Paul to Timothy, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without doubting. And just as Paul would have it, 
Christian and Hopeful began to lift up their hands even in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Well, we read, on Saturday night about midnight they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool, said he, am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in all doubting castle. Then said Hopeful, That's good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled the key out of his bosom, and the bolt gave back, and Christian and Hopeful both came out, and you may be sure they were soon out of the giant's jurisdiction. Now I do not know that I can do better at this point and in closing than just to tell you about some of that bunch of keys that John Bunyan found from time to time in his own bosom and which made all his prison doors one after another fly open at their touch. About ten o'clock one day as I was walking under a hedge full of sorrow and guilt, God knows, and bemoaning myself for my hard hap, suddenly this sentence bolted in upon me, The blood of Christ remits all guilt. Again, when I was fleeing from the face of God, for I did flee from his face, that is, my mind and spirit fled before him, for by reason of his highness I could not endure, then would the text cry, Return unto me. It would cry with a very great voice, Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And this would make me look over my shoulder behind me to see if I could discern that this God of grace did follow me with a pardon in his hand. Again the next day at evening, being under many fears, I went to seek the Lord, and as I prayed, I cried with strong cries, O Lord, I beseech thee, show me that thou hast loved me with an everlasting love. I had no sooner said it, but with sweetness, this returned upon me as an echo or sounding again. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now I went to bed at quiet. Also, when I awakened the next morning, it was fresh upon my soul, and I believed it. Again, as I was then before the Lord, that scripture fastened on my heart, O man, great is thy faith, even as if one had clapped me on the back as I was on my knees before God. At another time, I remember I was again much under this question, whether the blood of Christ was sufficient to save my soul in which doubt I continued from morning till about seven or eight at night, and at last when I was, as it were, quite worn out with fear, these words did sound suddenly within my heart, He is able. Methought this word able was spoken so loud unto me, and gave such a jostle to my fear and doubt, as I never had all my life either before that or after. Again one morning when I was at prayer and trembling under fear, that piece of a sentence dashed in upon me, my grace is sufficient. At this methought, oh how good a thing it is for God to send his word. Again one day as I was in a meeting of God's people, full of sadness and terror, for my fears were again strong upon me, and I was thinking that my soul was never the better, these words did with great power suddenly break in upon me. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee three times together and O me thought that every word was a mighty word unto me as my and grace and sufficient and for thee these words were then and sometimes still are far bigger words than others are 
Again one day as I was passing in the field and that too with some dashes in my conscience, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all I saw, with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. I saw also, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, oh, what did I see in that blessed sixth of John? Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I should in those days often flounce toward that promise as horses do toward sound ground that yet stick in the mire. Oh, many a pull hath my heart had with Satan for this blessed sixth of John. And again, as I was thus in a muse, that scripture also came with great power upon my spirit, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now was I got on high, I saw myself within the arms of grace and mercy, and though I was before afraid to think of a dying hour, yet now I cried, Let me die. Now death was lovely and beautiful in my sight, for I saw that we shall never live indeed till we be gone to the other world. Heirs of God, methought, heirs of God. God himself is the portion of his saints. This did sweetly revive my spirit and help me to hope in God which when I had with comfort mused on a while, that word fell with great weight upon my mind. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? At this I became both well in body and mind at once, for my sickness did presently vanish, and I walked comfortably in my work for God again. Such were some of the many keys by the use of which God let John Bunyan so often out of despair into full assurance and out of darkness into light. Which of the promises have been of such help to you? Over what scriptures have you ever cried out? Oh, how good a thing it is for God to send me his word. Which are the biggest words in all the Bible to you? To what promise did you ever flounce as horses flounce when he is sticking in the mire? And has any word of God so made God your God that even death itself, since it alone separates you from his presence, a lovely and beautiful thing in your eyes. Have you a cluster of such keys in your bosom? If you have, take them all out tonight and go over them again with thanksgiving before you sleep. Chapter 23, page 237 Knowledge I will give you pastors after mine own heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The delectable mountains rise out of the heart of Emmanuel's land. This fine range of far-rolling hills falls away on the one side toward the plain of destruction and on the other side toward the land of Beulah and the celestial city, and the way to the celestial city runs like a beeline over these well-watered pastures. Standing on a clear day on the highest peak of the delectable mountains, if you have good eyes, you can see the hill difficulty in the far back distance with a perpetual mist clinging to its base and climbing up its sides. Which mist, the shepherds say to you, rises all the year round off the slough of despond. While beyond that again the heavy smoke of the city of destruction and the town of stupidity shuts in the whole horizon. And then when you turn your back on all that, 
in favorable states of the weather, you can see here and there the shimmer of that river over which there is no bridge. And then again so high above the river that it seems to be a city standing in heaven rather than upon the earth, you will see the high towers and shining palace roofs and broad battlements of the new Jerusalem itself. The two travelers should have spent the past three days among the sites of the delectable mountains, and they would have done so had not the elder traveler misled the younger. But now that they were set free and fairly on the right road again, the way they had spent the past three days and three nights made the gardens and the orchards and the pastures that ran round the bottom and climbed up the sides of the delectable mountains, delectable beyond all description to them. Now there were on the tops of those mountains certain shepherds feeding their flocks, and they stood by the highway side. The two travelers therefore went up to the shepherds, and leaning upon their staves, as is common with weary travelers when they stand to talk with any by the way, they asked, Whose delectable mountains are these, and whose be the sheep that feed upon them? These mountains, replied the shepherds, are Emmanuel's land, and they are within sight of the city. The sheep also are his, and he laid down his life for them. After some more talk like this by the wayside, the shepherds, being pleased with the pilgrims, looked very lovingly upon them and said, Welcome to the delectable mountains. The shepherds then, whose names were knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere, took them by the hand to lead them to their tents and make them partake of what was ready at present. They said, moreover, We would that you should stay with us a while to be acquainted with us, and yet more to solace yourselves with the cheer of these delectable mountains. Then the travelers told them they were content to stay, and so they went to rest that night because it was now very late. The four shepherds lived all summer time in a lodge of tents well up among their sheep, while their wives and families had their homes all the year round in the land of Beulah. The four men formed a happy fraternity, and they worked among and watched over their master's sheep with one united mind. What one of these shepherds could not so well do in the tent or in the fold or out on the hillside, some of the others better did. And what one of them could do to any perfection, all the others by one consent left that to him to do. You would have thought that they were made by a perfect miracle to fit into one another, so harmoniously did they live and work together, and such was the bond of brotherly love that held them together. At the same time there was one of the happy quaternity who, from his years on the hills and his services in times of trial and danger, and one thing and another, fell always, and with the finest humility too, into the foremost place, and his name, as you already heard, was Knowledge. Old Mr. Know-All, the children in the villages below, ran after him and named him as they clustered round about his staff and hid in the great folds of his shepherd's coat. Now in all this John Bunyan speaks as a child to children, but of such children as John Bunyan and his readers is the kingdom of heaven. My very youngest hearer here tonight knows quite well, or at any rate, shrewdly suspects that knowledge was not a shepherd going about with his staff among woolly sheep, nor would the simplest-minded reader of John Bunyan's book go to see the delectable mountains and Emmanuel's land in any geographer's atlas or on any schoolroom map. Oh no! I do not need to stop to tell the most guileless of my hearers 
that old knowledge was not a shepherd whose sheep were four-footed creatures, but a minister of the gospel, whose sheep are men, women, and children. Nor are the delectable mountains any range of hills and valleys of grass and herbs in England or Scotland. The prophet Ezekiel calls them the mountains of Israel. But by that you all know that he had in his mind something far better than any earthly mountain. That prophet of Israel had in his mind the church of God with its synagogues and its sacraments, with all the grace and truth that all these things conveyed from God to the children of Israel. As David also sang in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Knowledge, then, is a minister, but every congregation has not such a minister set over it as knowledge is. All our college-bred and ordained men are not ministers like knowledge. This excellent minister takes his excellent name from his great talents and his great attainments. And while all his great talents are his master's gift to him, his great attainments are all his own to lay out in his master's service. To begin with, his master had given his highly favored servant a good understanding and a good memory and many good and suitable opportunities. Now a good understanding is a grand endowment for a minister and his ministerial office will all his days afford him opportunity for the best understanding he can bring to it. The Christian ministry, first and last, has had a noble role of men of a strong understanding. The author of the book now open before us was a man of a strong understanding. John Bunyan had a fine imagination with great gifts of eloquent, tender, and most heart-winning utterance. But in his case, also, all that was bottomed in a strong English understanding. Then again, a good memory is indispensable to a minister of knowledge. You must be content to take a second, a third, or even a lower place still if your master has withheld from you a good memory. Dr. Goodwin has a passage on this point that I have often turned up when I had again forgotten it. Thou mayest have a weak memory, perhaps, yet if it can and doth remember good things, as well and better than other things, then it is a sanctified memory, and the defilement of thy memory is healed, though the imperfection of it is not. And though thou art to be humbled for it as a misery, yet thou art not to be discouraged, for God doth not hate thee for it, but pities thee, and the like holds good and may be said as to the want of other like gifts. You cannot be a man of commanding knowledge anywhere, and you must be content to take a very subordinate and second place even in the ministry unless you have both a good understanding and a good memory. But then at the last day your master will not call you and your congregation to an account for what he has not committed to your stewardship. And on that day that will be something. But not only must ministers of knowledge have a good mind and a good memory, they must also be the most industrious of men. Other men may squander and kill their time as they please, but a minister had as good kill himself at once out of the way of better men, unless he is to hoard his hours like gold and jewels. He must read only the best books. He must read them with the pain of attention. He must read nothing that is not the best. He has not the time. And if he is poor and remote and has not many books, he will have butler, 
and let him read Butler's preface to his sermons till he has it by heart. The best books are always few, and they must be read over and over again when other men are reading the great number of books and papers of amusement that come daily in their way, and which most perfectly fall in with their idle way of reading and considering things. And then such a minister must store up what he reads, if not in a good memory, then in some other pigeonhole that he has made for himself outside of himself, since his master has not seen fit to furnish him with such a repository within himself. And then after all that, for a good minister is not made yet, understanding and memory and industry must all be sanctified by sweet prayer many times a day, and then laid out every day in the instruction, impression, and comfort of his people. And then that privileged people will be as happy in possessing that man for their minister as the sheep of Emmanuel's land were in having knowledge set over them for their shepherd. They will never look up without being fed. They will every Sabbath day be led by green pastures and still waters. And when they sing of the mercies of the Lord to them and to their children and forget not all his benefits, among the best of their benefits they will not forget to hold up and bless their minister. But then there is nowadays so much sound knowledge to be gained, not to speak of so many books and papers of mere pastime and amusement, that it may well be asked by a young man who is to be a minister whether he is indeed called to be like that great student who took all knowledge for his province. Yes, indeed he is. For if the minister and interpreter of nature is to lay all possible knowledge under contribution, what must not the minister of Jesus Christ and the interpreter of scripture and providence and experience and the human heart be able to make the sanctified use of. Yes, all kinds and all degrees of knowledge to be called knowledge belong by right and obligation to his office who is the minister and interpreter of him who made all things, who is the heir of all things and by whom all things consist. At the same time, since the human mind has its limits, and since human life has its limits, a minister of all men must make up his mind to limit himself to the best knowledge. The knowledge, that is, that chiefly concerns him. The knowledge of God so far as God has made himself known, and the knowledge of Christ. He must be a student of his Bible night and day and all his days. If he has not the strength of understanding and memory to read his Bible easily in the original Hebrew and Greek, let him all the more make up for that by reading it the oftener and the deeper in English. Let him not only read his Bible deeply for his sermons and prayers, lectures and addresses. Let him do that all day, every day of the week, and then read it all night and every night of the week for his own soul. Let every minister know his Bible down to the bottom and with his Bible his own heart. He who so knows his Bible and with it his own heart has almost books enough. All else is but ostentatious apparatus. When a minister has neither understanding nor memory wherewith to feed his flock, let him look deep enough into his Bible and into his own heart, and then begin out of them to write and speak. And then for the outside knowledge of the passing day, he will read the newspapers, and though he gives up all the morning to the newspapers and returns to them again in the evening, his conscience will not upbraid him if he reads as Jonathan Edwards read the newspapers of his day. 
to see how the kingdom of heaven is prospering in the earth and to pray for its prosperity. And then by that time and when he has got that length, all other kinds of knowledge will have fallen into its own place and will have taken its own proper proportion of his time and his thought. He was a man of a great understanding and a great memory and great industry who said that he had taken all knowledge for his province. But he was far a wiser man who said that knowledge is not our proper happiness. Our province, he went on to say, is virtue and religion, life and manners, the science of improving the temper and making the heart better. This is the field assigned us to cultivate. How much it has lain neglected is indeed astonishing. Now, my brethren, two dangers, two simply terrible dangers, arise to every one of you out of all this matter of your ministers and their knowledge. One, the first danger is, to be frank with you on this subject, that you are yourselves so ignorant on all the matters that a minister has to do with, that you do not know one minister from another a good minister from one who was really no minister at all. Now I will put it to you on what principle and for what reason did you choose your present minister, if indeed you did choose him? Was it because you were assured by people you could trust that he was a minister of knowledge and knew his own business? Or was it that when you went to worship with him for yourself, you have not been able ever since to tear yourself away from him? nor has anyone else been able to tear you away, though some have tried. When you first came to the city, did you give, can you remember, some real anxiety, rising sometimes into prayer, as to who your minister among so many ministers was to be? Or did you choose him in your presence in his church because of some real or supposed worldly interest of yours you thought you could further by taking your letter of introduction to him? Had you heard while yet at home, had your father and mother talked of such things to you, that rich men and men of place and power, political men and men high in society, sat in that church and took notice of who attended it and who did not? Do you, down to this day, know one church from another so far as spiritual and soul-saving knowledge is concerned? Do you know that two big buildings called churches may stand in the same street and have men called ministers carrying on certain services in them from week to week and yet for all the purposes for which Christ came and died and rose again and gave ministers to his church these two churches and their ministers are farther asunder than the two poles do you understand what I am saying? do you understand what I have been saying all night? Or are you one of those of whom the prophet speaks in blame and in pity as being destroyed for lack of knowledge? Well, this is your first danger, that you are so ignorant and, as a consequence, so careless as not to know one minister from another. Number two. And your second danger in connection with your minister is that you have and may have long had a good minister, but that you still remain yourself a bad man. My brethren, be you all sure of it, there is a special and a fearful danger in having a specially good minister. Think twice and make up your mind well before you call a specially good minister or become a communicant or even an adherent under a specially good minister. If two bad men go down together to the pit and the one has had a good minister, as God have mercy on us sometimes happens, 
and the other has only had one who had the name of a minister. The evangelized reprobate will lie in a deeper bed in hell and will spend a more remorseful eternity on it than will the other. No man among you, minister or no minister, good minister or bad, will be able to sin with impunity. But he who sins on and on after good preaching will be beaten with many stripes. Woe unto thee, Shorizon! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Thou that hast knowledge, says a powerful old preacher, canst not sin so cheap as another that is ignorant. Places of such knowledge, he was preaching in the university pulpit of Oxford, and plentiful in the means of grace are dear places for a man to sin in. To be drunken or unclean after a powerful sermon and after the Holy Ghost has enlightened thee is more than to have so sinned twenty times before. Thou mightest have sinned ten times more and been damned less. For does not Jesus Christ the judge say to thee, This is thy condemnation, that so much light has come to thee? In taking the then way of execution as a sufficiently awful illustration, the old Oxford Puritan goes on to say that the sin against light is the highest step of the ladder before turning off. And again, that if there are worms in hell that die not, it is surely gospel light that breeds them. Chapter 24, page 248 Experience My heart had great experience. A quote from the preacher. I will give them pastors after mine own heart. Experience, the excellent shepherd of the delectable mountains, had a brother in the army, and he was an equally excellent soldier. The two brothers, they were twin brothers, had been brought up together till they were grown-up men in the same town of Mansoul. All the experienced family indeed had from time immemorial hailed from that populous and important town, and their family tree ran back beyond the oldest existent history. The two brothers, while in all other things as like as two twin brothers could be, at the same time very early in life began to exhibit very different talents and tastes and dispositions, till when we meet with them in their full manhood, the one is a soldier in the army and the other a shepherd on the delectable mountains. The soldier brother is thus described in one of the military histories of his day, a man of conduct and of valor, and a person prudent in matters, a comely person, moreover, well-spoken in negotiations and very successful in undertakings. His colors were the white colors of man's soul, and his emblem was the dead lion and the dead bear. The shepherd brother, on the other hand, is thus pictured out to us by one who has seen him, a traveler who has visited the delectable mountains and has met and talked with the shepherds, thus describes experience in his excellent itinerary. Knowledge, he says, I found to be the sage of the company, spare in build, high of forehead, worn in age, and his tranquil gait touched with abstractedness. While experience was more firmly knit in form and face, with a shrewd kindly eye, and a happy readiness in his bearing, 
and all his hard-earned wisdom evidently on foot within him as a capability for work and for control. This, then, was the second of the four shepherds who fed Emmanuel's sheep on the delectable mountains. But here again tonight, and in the case of experience, just as last Sabbath night, and in the case of knowledge, in all this John Bunyan speaks to children. Only the children here are the children of the kingdom of heaven. The various child who reads the delectable mountains begins to suspect before he is done that knowledge and experience are not after all two real and true shepherds going their rounds with their staves and their wallets and their wheeling dogs. Yes, though the little fellow cannot put his suspicions into proper words for you, all the same he has his suspicions that he is being deceived by you and your Sabbath book. And ten to one from that skeptical day he will not read much more of John Bunyan till in after life he takes up John Bunyan never for a single Sabbath again to lay him down. Yes, let the truth be told at once. Experience is simply a minister and not a real shepherd at all. A minister of the gospel, a preacher and a pastor. But then he is a preacher and a pastor of no ordinary kind but of the selectest and the very best kind. Number one. Now, my brethren, to plunge at once out of the parable and into the interpretation, I observe in the first place that pastors who are indeed to be pastors after God's own heart have all to pass into their pastorate through the school of experience. Preaching after God's own heart and pastoral work of the same divine pattern cannot be taught in any other school than the school of experience. Poets may be born and not made, but not pastors nor preachers. Nay, do not all our best poets first learn in their sufferings what afterwards they teach us in their songs? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.